I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. Would you please pray with me? Uh, so, Father, who poured out your love on us, who loves your son dearly, the son of your, your beloved son, who has transferred us from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, and through whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins, uh, you're about to tell us um, amazing amount of new stuff that the world had never heard before in this text, ever. And so I pray, Father, that you would please, by the power of your Spirit, and, and, and based upon your love for us, would you please help us by your Spirit in two ways. Help me as a very limited, foolish man in my words. Um, guide and direct me as I would speak in my heart. And I pray you be with all of us then. Lord, let our hearts be ready. Ready our hearts to receive precious, sweet, amazing information. So I pray, Father, you make us more attentive than we are. May you make us more soft than we've ever been. And help us by your spirit, Lord, so that we might live in this new space you brought us to. We love you, and we look forward to your work today. We know that we have everything we ask, we ask according to your will. And this is your will for us to know this. So trust, Father, that you will give it to us in new ways, deep ways, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are back into Colossians after a long hiatus with Advent and our, and our um, vision series. Uh, we're back in Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 1. Um, Tina, thank you for reading scripture. When I grow up, I want to be able to read like Tina. Uh, I, um, yesterday, I took a trip up to Marion to see my in-laws, and I have that Dwell app on my phone. Uh, you, if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, it might be a good idea to get one. I use the one that's called Dwell. It cost me like 25 bucks a year, but they've got all these different voices that read it, and I like Rosie, uh, kind of a British or Australian accent. I can't tell the difference between the two. Sorry if I offend. Um, I like them both. And so yesterday, I discovered glorious things for me. Like, I am ADD to the max. Um, and so I took old Rosie and cranked her down to 75 speed, and I, and I listened to Colossians all the way up. Picked up a little bit of Romans, and then on the way back, I listened to all Colossians again at 75 speed. And, and Rosie somehow still sounds like Rosie, but it's slow enough that my mind has to deal with the words. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And um, I, just, I just heard so many things in there that I probably wouldn't hear in reading just a little chunk or reading it fast. And it was uh, really helpful to my heart. And uh, so I want to greet you this morning here if you are a Christian or a non-Christian, if you're online or in person. Um, this text catches on right where we left last time, and since it's been, yay, verily, a little bit since we were there, I'm just going to read a couple verses. This is verse uh, 13 and 14. So I would invite you to be in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to stay there. In any place that's not there, I'll put it on the screen for you. Okay? Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it talks about this amazing thing. He has delivered us, that's Christians, from the domain of darkness, that's a kingdom power control of darkness, and transferred us, so delivered us from that, and transferred us to a new place, the kingdom of his beloved son. So a new land, a new administration, a new kingdom, and that kingdom belongs to the very loved son of the father, he's beloved by him. And that one, in verse 14, in whom we have received redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that one, who is now the king of us, instead of us being, the, us being ruled by darkness, we're now ruled by the king of light, 
that very king is the one who bought us out of darkness, forgave our sins. So I just set this stage here. It's an amazing thing because then it goes on to the, the, this wonderful argument of like, and who exactly is he? This king that did these two things for us, who exactly is, it? is he? So if, if you're listening this morning and, and this is kind of new to you, notice the two things said about him in 13. Number one, kingdom of his beloved son, he's the Lord. And number two, in whom we have redemption, he's the Savior. So when we go through gospel stuff here, um, a couple of things we often talk about is this idea of who is Jesus. We kind of split two categories, this offer and the payment. What's it like to be with him? Offer. Like to be under like the perfect love and, 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 and care and provision and leadership of, of a king who's spotless and has no sin in him and makes no error and knows all things and works all things together for your good. But is your king, like the king, not the advisor, the whole thing buys you. Like that's what that offer is. And then the payment is that portion of verse 14. Is it he who would redeem you? So there, there is this apprehension if you're new to looking at Jesus, you're trying to understand this message of the gospel. There's, there's really two questions. Do you want what God is offering you in Jesus? Do you really want this new king, this new king of glory? And if you want this new king, and quite honestly, only if you want the new king, the second question is there, like, how are you going to get him? How are you going to get out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom? And, and, the, and, the, and the word of scripture is, only he takes people out of darkness into light. Only he forgives. Only he redeems. And you have to be redeemed. That's why at the end we'll celebrate communion we're sitting there as a bunch of people with bread and juice in our hands saying, I was a person that needed to be redeemed. I was in darkness, and I needed, I, I, don't, I didn't want to be in darkness anymore. I want to, be belong to, I want to belong to Jesus. And Jesus himself had to redeem. He had to do that saving work for me. He paid for me on the cross and redeemed me out of darkness. So if you're new to the story of, of the gospel and trying to figure out who he is, it can be confusing, but it's incredibly simple. I was talking with somebody, and I can't remember who it was because I talked to a lot of people. And we were talking this week about how Jesus said many things in very simple terms that you could lawyer, lawyer your way out of all day long and ask, like, well, what do you mean by what do you mean? But he says it. In some sense, he's like, look right here. Listen to what I'm saying. And that's why a little kid can hear the message of the gospel and get completely what Jesus means when he says, follow me. Well, do you mean physically? Do you mean financially? And he's like, Follow me, right? And so this, there's this idea of us coming to Jesus with earnestness and true listening ears. And so as we go into this passage here, this is, this is where it's set up for. We're about to enter into who Jesus is, not so much, not so much what Jesus has done for us. So, and it's really helpful. Um, it's helpful like Trinitarian thought, all right? So in the Old Testament, God's, character and nature, particularly his nature, was described rather simplistically. We didn't understand the full degree of the Trinity, right? We knew there's one God, and we knew he did certain things. But in the, in the New Testament, God really reveals himself a lot, right? He, he takes us on a field trip to see something way over our pay level and says there's actually a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, one being three persons, and the Father is not the Son, and this, you know, there's all this detail. But, but there's details in it, not just simply in the nature, but how we interact. We pri pray primarily to the Father through the Son and our identity in the Son, helped by 
the intercession of the Spirit, because we don't know what to pray for. So, so it's not just like strange theological points scattered out there. The really details. We know God now as New Testament believers in ways the Old Testament believers never could have because of alone our understanding of the nature of the triune God. Now, he doesn't explain all the pieces to us, and we know lots of its mystery, but most of us would kind of resolve ourselves to go, okay, it's a respectful mystery, but are we diving into the deets of the, of the mystery? Right Because there's details, and those details bring us intensity and bring us joy and bring us faith in our walk with him and much more uh, richness and strength in it, right? Well, in the same way here, I guess I want to say with this this morning, this text here, what, what are you going to do with this text? This text brings us to the parts in, in, um, in verses 12 and four, uh, 13 and 14 were really what he did for us. And they draw us to amazement, right? But this text is not so much admiring Christ for really his kingship of us and how he rules us now and provides for us so much. And it's not so much amazement in Jesus for how he saved us because usually when we come to know Jesus, most of us, the first thing that really amazes us about Jesus as we actually get amazed by him is how he saved us how he's rescued us out of peril to safety. That's usually what hits us first and unfolds more and more. And, and even Christ supports this when he's saying, like, he who's been forgiven little loves little, right? There's this, there's this deepening of the size of our forgiveness, which amazes us, and the more we understand and are impacted that we have been forgiven, we love more, right? So what usually catches our radar first is the intensity of the forgiveness of Jesus. And then what catches our radar second is the intensity of the Graceberg, right? The intensity of all the graces that God pours out on us now, all of the love and all of the wisdom and all of the direction and, like, and abiding in his love, and not only here, but all that will come, all that he will do to us, what it means to live under his love and care. But in the same way that there is so much help thinking about God in a Trinitarian way and knowing him in his Trinitarian display of himself, there's a lot of help in us knowing our admiration of Jesus for not only what he did to us in forgiveness and what he does to us in his current blessing of us and our future blessing of us, but third category is just flat out who he is. Flat out who he is. And that might be the hardest one for our eyes to be open to. To actually look and say, okay, so this one, that man, I was in the darkness, now I'm in his kingdom of light and he's rescued me. Like, now, who is that one? Now that we're here, it's us beginning to discover that that's our king, that's our, the one we love, that's our forgiver, our forgiver, but who is he? And this is God, for the first time, dropping information about exactly who Jesus is in his nature. Humanity had never heard these things until it hit this text in these places here, in the middle of Paul's demonstration of this letter. So, I think it's incredibly helpful, and I think it really helped your heart admire Jesus because, yes, it's easiest probably to think about his forgiveness of you, and then it really, we can, we're growing, we're just growing in this, our, our, our really our grasping of his love for us and pouring out goodness on us. But this third category, and I think it will fill your heart in as much as God will open our eyes to it, was just flat out who he is, who he is, the majesty of the one that we have come to know because we usually come to know him in intimacy, right? In simple faith, and then his majesty pours out over us. So here we are. We are in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It's just the portions I'm going to preach on today. Thank you for reading the entirety of it. We'll be hitting the next part of that next day. Our first piece is this. Christ is so much more 
than just our King and Savior. He's so much more than just our King and Savior. Look at 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So in verse 13, we know that Jesus is beloved by the Father, and we know from verse 13 that he has a kingdom. In 14, we know that he liberates us from darkness. But in 15, he's bringing out this unbelievably vast thing that's not quite so apparent to us. He's bringing up the nature of Jesus. So if I asked you, if I asked you the question, what is God? If I asked you, what is God? By the way, are there any kids in here that know the answer to that if I said, what is God? Just out of curiosity. All right, it's cool. What, what is God? <laughs> that is it. God is a spirit. That's the answer. And that's the very, very correct answer. Nice job. Um, so I, I did that because when we see that God, that Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God, there's a question then. It's like, who is God? What is God? Just a moment of advertising here. What she correctly said wasn't like just simply a um, pull out of the hat. That comes from a thing called a catechism. You might come from different stripes of this world, and catechisms can mean different things, but a catechism is simply a teaching tool, and it's usually aimed at kids. But it's not simple answers for simple questions. A catechism is written by people who are theologians who scour all the scriptures, and after they've scoured all the scriptures and figured out everything they can say, they're bringing back all those things down to the, the most calculated, accurate, simple, strategic phrases to give in the most simple way to kids and people beyond. They are, oh man, they are like, like the beef bouillon of Scripture, <laughs> right? It is just the essence, and it's, they're strategic. There's no th- not a throwaway word in them. And some of them are written at a little more middle, like uh, elementary level, and some of them are written at a really small age. And um, I would encourage you, if you have not read through a catechism, she obviously has. Um, do it. Like, like, because um, sometimes it's hard. We lose our ways in trying to figure out, well, all the, you know, all this theology can be so confusing. A catechism, a good one, will bring clarity to that. It'll give a foundation for that. So uh, we have one on our website. If you're under resources, it's one that I've written over the last 21 years, and I, I keep redoing it. It's called Crossview, and you're welcome to take a look at it. So what is God? The answer is he's a spirit. Because he's a spirit, he doesn't have a body. How do we know that? Well, that verse tells us he's the invisible, <laughs> he's the invisible God. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. But this text tells us that Jesus is something new in the scene. He is the image of the invisible God. We're told in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one can see God. Only one really knows about God. That is God himself. And this text here is talking about Jesus. The one who's by his side, he has made him known. We see here that God is invisible. But Christ himself is God, now made visible, physical, tangible, seen. Consider these texts. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6. It's up on the screen if you want to read it there. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is 
the image, he is, Christ, is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do you know the greatness of God? You look at Christ physically at one time, and now we look at him through what is written, but again, we will see him physically. Hebrews 1, 3 to, 1 to 3, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That would be the OT, the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Old Testament, the prophets were the spokesmen of God, right? They're, they're speaking on behalf of God. New Testament opens up. We have the last prophet, who's John the Baptist. And then all of a sudden, Jesus himself, he's not a prophet. Jesus, has, he has been spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. So Jesus isn't like a shadow of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the fullness of God, the, emanating the full radiance of the glory of God. That is God, Jesus walking in the flesh. And FYI, upholds the universe by the word of his power. You don't do that. He does that. Then look in John 14, uh, 8, 9, 8 to 9, in the words of Jesus himself, as he talks to his disciples, he says, they said, show us the Father. Oh, I, I'm sorry, I have it right here. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Just show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So just text after text, God is spirit, but Jesus is God in the flesh. The, vis the invisible one, the invisible God, has become visible in Jesus. He's taken on flesh. Christ was not merely a man, but God, and this is why the Father commands angels to worship Jesus, and yet the angels themselves not only worship Jesus, but abundantly demand that no man, angel, creature ever be worshipped, but only God alone. You don't know that's at? Revelation, take a read. Okay? So God the Father tells all the angels, worship the Son. You don't worship something that's not divine. And then all those angels said, we got you, and they worship. In Revelation, we see John, who's the writer of all this. He's just seeing things are blowing his mind. He loses his, loses his marbles for a moment. He tries to bow down a couple times to the angels. The angel's like, oh, 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 no, 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 no. I'm just a fellow servant like you. Worship God. Worship Christ. So Christ is so much more than just our King and Savior Jesus Christ is the full revelation of the Father and how we know God. He was and is God with us. Our second piece is Christ is the resident creator. Christ is the resident creator. Look in 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So let's tackle this term firstborn. Firstborn technically literally means the one who was born first. Okay. <laughs> all right. So... Chronologically, this one was born first, technically is what it means. But more specifically in Scripture, it's a position. It's a position. It's a position of preeminence, the most important, next in line, heir, honored, particularly an honored leader of a whole peer group. 
A firstborn isn't just simply like a dad. It's an honored leader of a peer group. It's got one foot in the peers and one foot in the leaders. So we see that this position doesn't literally mean the one who was born first often in Scripture. Sometimes it does. Often it doesn't. And particularly in Scripture, it is used particularly when it is not speaking of that. And it's pretty clear. So here's some, here's some examples. In the Old Testament, Esau, that hairy beast, um, he sold his firstborn status. He sold his firstborn status for a bowl of soup. And Isaac became the firstborn. He became in the position. It wasn't like history is rewrote and all of a sudden, whoop, whoop, they went back in and Isaac came out first. No, position was transferred to Esau. Likewise, later on, Jacob is passing on the blessings. That's a mysterious topic. But um, J- J- Jacob is old, really old. He's blind. He's got a, his hand on a bedpost or a stick or something like that. And, and they're bringing in the boys, and he's passing on his blessings to them. And Joseph brings in his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, and he brings them there, and one is older. And his name is Manasseh. And the second one is Ephraim. And Jacob goes in, all blind and crusty, goes in and goes, whoop, switches the hands and puts his right hand of blessing, the, the, the first hand blessing, goes over onto Ephraim, while the second blessing, the lesser blessing, goes to Manasseh. And, and Joseph's like, hey there, Dad, uh, you got a mixed up. And he's like, no, I don't. I know what I'm doing. And it's very meaningful. The firstborn position was passed to Ephraim. And later on, it's, it's quoted later on in the scriptures that he's done that. Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his firstborn. So the, tar- the, title, the title firstborn is a title. It's a title preeminence. It's a title of first in the midst of peers, not outside of the midst of peers. Here he's the firstborn in our text today. Next week, he's the firstborn from the dead. And in Psalm 89, he's the firstborn of all the kings on earth. Jesus' firstborn. So on taking on human flesh, he becomes a firstborn. He couldn't be the firstborn without becoming a man. So Jesus has always been God, becomes a man also. Needed to become a man in order to be firstborn. Over it as part of it. Over it as part of it. So it's important we know that Christ, the Father and Son, were not created. Father, Son, Spirit were not created. They were not created beings. They've eternally existed. But now, following his victory on earth, Christ is the uncreated one who shares in our created flesh nature. He's the uncreated one who shares in our created flesh nature. And in the next verse, we find that he, Christ is the uncreated creator who actually shares in our created nature. And what's the point of all this? The point is to see the stunning love and humility of this preeminent one. This... this this one that we first knew is simply our new home, our new rescuer. Um, he's not just amazing in what he's done for us. He's amazing in who he is. Like, he, he, we'll see, he makes this place, but he's, he takes on flesh so that God may be seen, experienced firsthand, tangibly, physically, and so that he might be a participant in our lives, in our creation, so that he might stand forever as our high priest. He might stand forever making intercession for us. He might stand forever having understanding what we've been through. He's the firstborn because he took on flesh. Look at verse 16. For by him, all things are created. So he just established that he is divine and human. Okay? 
Now that one, by him, all things were created in heavens and on earth. So literally, the word is heavens here. This is speaking of the spirituals, the spiritual realm versus the earthly realm. So all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So let me just break that down a little bit. Jesus made everything. Everything you can see, everything that really exists and that you can't see. The visible and the invisible. And in the invisible and in the visible, there are all kinds of not only things, but powers and authorities and influences. There are earthly thrones and earthly powers and authorities. We call them presidents and governors and sometimes influencers. And on the spiritual powers, they're called angels and demons and archangels and the like. So he uses four terms here to describe earthly and spiritual powers. He is the firstborn of all of creation that he created, including every last power or spirit. He has no equals. He has no contemporaries. Um, on, another, on another day, I guess I just want to see, in this passage here, the Spirit of God is pushing Jesus way up. There's another day where we can talk another topic about how we get to share into the nature of Christ. Okay? Some of us have been thinking about that. It's good. But for one moment, let's let the Spirit of God push Jesus way past us. Way past us. The one who is the firstborn of creation, the image of the invisible God, who made everything and every power and every piece of creation and every spirit and every human and every president made it all. And they were created through him and for him. So Jesus is the creator, not simply the Father. We understand later on that the Father and the Son are both involved in, in creation. But Jesus is literally the creator. That might not have been in your Trinitarian mix. Maybe not. Maybe it was. Maybe, maybe it was just a soft, a soft put. But you can make it a hard put. Jesus made it all. Jesus Christ is the humble creator and owner of all things, powers, spirits, and people. Which, okay, let me just, let's just get under your skin for a second. He made you. He made you. You're not an accident. I don't care what you believe. I, I, other people will say different things. But the God of heaven is saying you are not an accident. You didn't involve from two rocks clacking together with no purpose or intention. He actually made you. You were made through him and you were made for him. You were made for him. And until your heart aligns with that, you're standing in rebellion against that. But man, there's this liberation in discovering that's where you came from. You came from the mind of God. You're not an accident. You're not a throwaway. You came from the mind of God, and your intended purpose of creation is for him. Third, all things find definition in Christ and exist for him. All things find definition in Christ and exist for him. For one moment, when I say definition, I mean this. All things are, in actuality, simply part of his domain. It's all for him. He's the ultimate importance. So that's what I mean by definition. So all things find definition in Christ and exist for him. Look in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Shorty. He is before all things, and all things hold together. But it may not be what you first think. Okay? Because just notice the sentence here. He is before all things. That's, that's actually kind of a strange clause, right? Because you would think you would say, he was before all things, right? We have that in English. We have it is before all things and it was before all things. And if we're trying to look back to the beginning of things, 
uh, which most of this passage here is looking back to where it all came from, you'd think you could say he was before all things. And yea, verily in Greek, you can easily say that as well. There's something very unique being said here. He is before all things, and it's not a reference to his eternality because it's already established in the passage and beyond. This is a reference to his priority and his preeminence over all things. He is literally the first of all things. Every, everything lines up behind him. Every mountain in Yosemite, every ruler that's ever ruled over Mongolia, everything you've ever looked at, everything's on your phone, everything, everything fits into him. You as a believer, you as not a believer, all, he is before all things. He is the definition of us, the air we breathe, the universe we float around in, every season, every tide, every change, everything, he is before it all. He is preeminent. We find our definition in him. And then the second one is kind of funny too. It says, and in him all things hold together. Uh, literally, um, I mean, it sounds like a statement similar to what we read in Hebrews, which he says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so it is true. Christ actively holds all things together, right? By what he does in his, I mean, you don't have the ability to think about this. I mean, you and I can't even like keep our little worlds together. But Christ, because he is immense and vast and endless, he can keep this, uh, my little world together and yours and everyone else's together. He sustained these things here. But this passage here, I don't believe is talking about him sustaining these things in the word of his power. It has to do with purpose. It has to do with purpose. It literally says, all, all things in him together stand. All things in him together stand. This whole passage here is about Christ is the origin of all things and the owner of all things, and even still at this very moment, everything, you and me, believer or not, everything finds its purpose. We together stand in him, in his story, in his ambition, in his glory. It's all about him. What do you believe in him or say you don't believe him or not? It's all about him. And what do you know him or, or, or love him deeply or whatever? It's all about him. It is all about him. He is before us, and in him, we all together stand. He's the defining purpose of us all. Everything, everyone is positioned and continues to exist for and in his design, purpose, and glory. He is the defining purpose of all. There is no thing or creature or person or demon that does not rightly and completely owe its existence and purpose to Christ. There's nothing outside of his glory. So the impacts of this, what are the impacts of this? Well, number one, if you don't know Jesus yet, unless you love Jesus, this is most likely just grating up against you like this is not welcome news if you don't like him that he owned that he made you he's a purpose for you your whole life and existence is defined as part of what he's doing how dare he so you feel that way but but i just want to say I'm not, I'm not making fun of you i'm just saying that's the way we feel in our flesh and i'm just saying from my heart um, hear what the spirit has said clearly Christ is inescapable. And he has now testified to you in exact, specific words on this day. And it's the truth. It is the unavoidable truth, but it could be so much more if you don't know him. He invites you into his love. He has, he has established that he is inescapable, and yet his love and sweet, perfect leadership is offered freely to you. Cling to it. Like, let him transfer you from the darkness you live in into marvelous light and let him do the transferring. That's what's Christian. He offers it to you. 
He's inescapable, unavoidable for you. Don't fight against him. Cling to him. I'll just tell you with all my heart, as a firsthand experience, he is absolutely good to his promises. He has never been failing on any of them. He has extended his love, and I as a child have, I mean, thousands of times chosen to not live under his love and have experienced all kinds of dissatisfaction in my life. But when I live under his love, he never takes his love away, but he gives me instruction, right? He cares for me. He, gives, he draws me near. When I live there, I experience joy and life and vitality like I have nowhere else in this world. Every bit of him that I've tasted is absolutely true, just as he promised. And I invite you to jump to him out of darkness. Now, Christian, fellow citizens of the Redeemer's, the Redeeming Son's kingdom, man, look at who our rescuer actually has been all along. You know, as I said, often, rightly, our first moments of appreciation and awe for Christ are because of his rescuing work. And then as we get a little older, our eyes, our spiritual eyes, get opened a little bit more, and we're like, oh man, not only did he rescue me, but he's a really good king, right? He's promising all this joy and all this satisfaction. And then we start, when we actually think about it, and we ask a spirit to remind us, we start looking in the river mirror, and it's just stacked back there. All the goodnesses and all the kindnesses of the things he's done inside us, the things he's done around us, his amazing other children he brings to us, like an immense pile of stuff behind us. And so our eyes open a little bit more, and we can say, oh man, not only is it good to not die in hell, but it's good to live with God, not just go to heaven, right? So heaven is going to be sweet, but m- more than heaven, there's God in heaven, and I love him more. But I would say, this here is a time where we're really asking God to open our eyes a little bit even more, like wide open, to look at Jesus and to behold him. You know, I don't know about you, but I have places and times where I just stare at things. Because I know, well, not because I'm mental, but um, uh, I am that, um, But because something in front of me is so good, so good, um, I love to stare at Melissa's face. She does not like me staring at her face. And she even less enjoys me talking about like to stare at her face. Um, There's so much there to pull in and gaze at, right? On lesser levels, I love to sit quietly in nature, under the water, in a tree, wherever, and just like look. Look. Look at the colors. Look at the shapes. Feel the textures. Look. I have other friends that aren't quite so patient, and they open their window and go, oh, it's the fall. This is exactly what we do to Jesus, right? Jesus is, Jesus right here is the Father is pulling back the drapes and says, behold Jesus. So if you want to taste the goodness of Jesus, uh, go in this category alone. Try, Try pushing in this category. Thank him for all he's done for you. Thank you for all he will continue to do to you. But for a moment, look at him. Look at the one who we are already with. Like, let us grow in the admiration. I was listening this week to someone talk about a, a really, like, high-level SEAL Team 6 warrior who guarded the president on a couple of things. And he gets out and he decides to start a landscaping business. And, like, he's the only one. And so he's in this planter pulling out these, these weeds and these people are walking by him with their lattes and just kind of like snubbing him because he's just, you know, just a worker, right? Who are you? Um, I'll tell you who he is, right? But once you realize, oh, 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 like it just changes everything, right? And I don't know if you guys ever met somebody or had someone in your family that all of a sudden as you've, as you've grown to understand that they have positions of majesty and power and accomplishments way beyond simply being your grandpa, way beyond simply being that sweet neighbor, 
Because, and when you do that, man, your admiration for them grows more and more. This is, this is to, the, to the nth degree, this Jesus who saves is the Jesus who made. This is the Jesus who took on flesh to be God visible to us. Not only God visible to us, but God who's experienced life with us. The God who still possesses this created flesh and stands on, in heaven beyond our behalf. He's amazing. He's not just the eminent creator and the leader and sustainer. Like, he's so with us. So with us. So, in a sense, we start with the easiest spots, but here's a little harder one. Right? So, application. This is why we sing to Jesus. This makes us in our faith strong. This is a category, and you're singing those songs. We're like, okay, and, and it's not, it's talking about Jesus, and it's not talking about forgiveness, and it's not talking about him giving love towards us, and just saying things about him. This is why you can think about it, stare at it. This is why you can lift your hand in, in affirmation, saying, that's true. I barely get what the heck is talking about at all, but that is true. That is beautiful. My eyes are gunked up with spiritual sleep, and I can barely get through it, but I know there's something there way beyond what I can see. And so we rejoice in Jesus for who he is, even when we're not thinking about exactly what he's done for us. He is amazing, divine, now human, the exact revelation of the Father, the one who has made everything and keeps it together, the one who everything was made for, the purpose of everyone, everything, the one that every amazing taste and sight and feel and smell experience points to and testifies of just how sweeter it's going to get as we see him with our own eyes. Our Savior and wonderful King, he is majestic, supreme, and the purpose of all the created universe. So, if you, if you don't understand this much, and I imagine most of us are probably in this category. Some of us would go, I don't even know. I, I personally, personally, firsthand, I haven't experienced any of this. And some of us would go, pieces, pieces. And some of us go, pieces at a couple of moments. And some of us go, like, I, I'm getting more and more of this. So wherever you're on the spectrum of this, but I especially speak to you if you're on the front end of the spectrum, where you're like, man, I don't understand it much. I, I see where it should be going, but I don't understand it very much. But frankly, my heart's not stirred. I just would tell you, brother, sister, don't give up. Don't despair. And above all, don't dismiss it. Remember, Jesus, he's the one that forgave you, bought you, brought you into the kingdom. And this is what he does to people in his kingdom. He opens their eyes so they don't live like beggars in his kingdom, but they live like lavish children in their kingdom when they understand really who the king is. So don't dismiss it just because you don't get it. And then none of, none of us get the luxuries of like showing up in the kingdom of God. Oh, like massive developed spiritual beings. We're all brought in as spiritual babes. So babe up, right? So, so we own it, say, oh, okay, God, I've got so little in this. Beg this one, the son. Like beg him for sight. Beg him with all your heart. Don't just rip off something real fast. Well, let me get it. And go back to your phone. Beg him with all your heart. Throw your phone across the room. Set a timer. Maybe for the first time, try it for five minutes. Get down on your knees and say, God, let me get it. Let me get it. Maybe do it for 15 minutes. Maybe do it for an hour. Maybe for the first time in your life, do it three hours. Maybe a half day. Maybe take two days, go somewhere. Like To spend time saying, God, open my eyes. I just can't get my eyes off the inside of my spiritual eyelids. I can't see it. I'm telling you, Christ is telling us this because he wants us to see it. He's not bragging about it. If you only were so lucky, 
you are lucky. He's shown it to you today. So he wants you to know it. So invite him and ask him, like, God, let me get it. Let me move, move past my head into my heart. Make my heart stirred. Degree by degree, let him give you the heart sight of awe and admiration and joy in the majesty of Jesus. So with that said, um, we're going to sing four songs. Because after I sing this passage, I'm like, oh, man, what in the world? We gotta like sing our songs after this passage as we sing the majesty of Jesus. So I'm gonna invite you to pray with me, but I'm also gonna invite you to think with me as we sing these songs. I'm not gonna invite you to sing songs and just like get excited about the parts that you understand, you feel. I'm gonna invite you to look at the parts that you don't quite understand and don't yet feel and know that that's home, that's eyes open, and cast your, your voice, cast your hands, whatever it is into saying, that's true, God, and give it to me and let me grow into this truth. For the praise of a king who is someone far more than we ever thought he was when we first asked him to save us. Let's pray. Father, um, man, my heart needs this more than anybody else, just as much. Um, I need my eyes opened. Behold the beauties of Jesus, because my eyes just see all the stuff around me and all my experiences and all, and all these blessings you've given me, Lord. I, I just get taken up with them and keep quit looking to you and seeing how they're foretasted of you and um, sight. Father, let us behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Let us not only mentally know the radiance of your glory, but Lord, let us behold the radiance of your glory. Impress our hearts and move us deeply, Father. I pray that you would please be with us now as we sing, that we would be able to pour our hearts out to you. I ask that you would, um, yeah, the love that you've told us you have, and you do, through the spirit that you said we have, and we do, let us exalt your name forever. So help us, Lord, as we respond to you. In Christ's name, 